Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycled clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. Picnic Wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and deadstock textiles. Picnic Wear strives for minimal waste but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun, new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift Clothing, out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at late to the party people. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Find our cute and sustainable fashion picks at the Silver Lake Flea and on Instagram at Vino Vintage. Wide Eyed Vintage, truly covetable vintage curated in Minneapolis, Minnesota, giving each piece lifetimes of wear beyond the life it has already lived. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. And Shop Journal, upcycled, handmade, and vintage clothing and accessories. One woman owned and operated in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They love details, bright colors, and everything extra. This month, they're donating to Fair Fight Action. Getting dressed should be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that did cry a little bit while editing this episode. So just be aware that you might cry a little bit too. I'm so excited about today's episode. You know how like the very first time you talk to someone, you're like, I love this person and I hope we're friends forever. Well, that's how I feel about Claire Duty, the owner slash designer slash mastermind behind Portland-based plus-size brand, Copper Union. She's a truly magical person, and I'm so excited that I got a chance to talk to her for Close Horse. Today is part one of our conversation, and we'll basically be getting the official Claire Duty origin story. Artsy High School, a love affair with Newsies, a cameo from our mutual friend and another magical person. 
Ty McBride of Intentionally Blank, and some crazy mall shoplifting stories. I mean, this story has it all, and there's so much more. I'm just so excited for you to meet Claire. First, it's time to shout out the newest supporters on Patreon. Okay, well, we've got Mary Jo Fish from Brooklyn, New York. Now, as you know, I stalk all of the patrons on social media, but like, you know, in a very gentle, well-meaning way. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I swear it's not as creepy as it sounds. And Mary Jo has an adorable dog named Molly. I'm so glad that we have so many animal-loving listeners. <laughs> Thank you, Mary Jo. Next is Annery Sanchez of Yucaipa, California, and I hope I didn't mispronounce the town there. She sells vintage on the internet as Hella Awkward Shop, and she's super cute. I guess hella cute. And she has a really good eye, so check it out. Thank you, Annery. And last but not least, we have Stephanie Schwally, another Brooklander. Brooklandian? What do you guys like to be called? Brooklynite? <laughs> Stephanie is a renaissance woman with a stunning jewelry brand called Castle Cliff, and she makes really awesome ceramics too. So Stephanie, how do you even have the time to listen to Clothes Horse? You're just out there like doing magical creative stuff all the time. Thank you so much for supporting the show and me. Also, a special note to all of you Patreons who are signing up in December. So that would be the three people I just mentioned. Mary Jo, Annery, and Stephanie, and whoever else signs up this month, I'm going to be mailing out your swag a little late because I want to throw in an anti-brunch society pin, which hopefully should be arriving later this week or early next week. And I literally just crossed my fingers really hard as I said that, because if you haven't heard, the USPS is really struggling right now. I'll let you know as soon as I have a better idea of when the pins are coming but I know they're in production right now. And speaking of brunch pins, I can't believe that people in 30 countries have listened to me, Amanda McCarty, talk more than 10,000 times about fashion, sustainability, classism, ethics, and all of my weird stories. <laughs> you know, I started Close Horse in a really weird time, which if you've been listening since the beginning, you know this, right? I was recovering from long COVID. I mean, I literally was sick from January until the summer and I still have like weird flare-ups. My doctor is finally like, okay, yes, you have long COVID. What else? I lost my job. I'd kind of seen the death of my career as I knew it. Not kind of, just like definitely. I was depressed, frightened. I had bursitis <laughs> in my elbows. And, you know, I felt, I felt really hopeless. I was just trapped in my row home in Philly feeling just overwhelmed. And I was even bored with video games at that point. But I also kept finding myself explaining how things work in fashion and other things related to that in this subreddit that I love called Blog Snark. And I wondered, would anyone else ever want to listen to me talk about this? Would someone listen to a podcast about this? And I, to be honest, I really wasn't sure that anyone would. I could tell that a lot of the people around me sort of thought it was a quarantine hobby, but they were also glad that I was no longer laying on the couch 24 hours a day. And, you know, at first I thought maybe that's what it was going to be too, but 
fortunately, like so many of my smart, funny, amazing friends agreed to volunteer their time and experience to make this happen. You've met a lot of them along the way. I mean, you have to admit, we've had some amazing guests so far. I feel really lucky to know all of these people. And I feel like it says something about the life I've been lucky enough to lead so far. Pretty rapidly, the show got more and more political and more and more personal and more and more radical. (laughs) Once again, I didn't think anybody would want to listen to that. But you've been listening, you've been engaging with me, and we're starting to build a community here. It feels so good. If you don't follow Close Horse Podcast on Instagram, then you may not have heard that I was recently called the L Woods of the slow fashion movement. And I will tell you that I'm currently wearing a pink sweater and a pink neckerchief. So perhaps I am. But it wouldn't be happening with all of you. Like, I wouldn't be here being the Elwoods of the slow fashion movement if you weren't listening and telling your friends and calling me and messaging me and asking questions. Like, you're a big part of this happening. So I'm so grateful for that. And as a show of thanks, I couldn't, I had a really hard time figuring out what I could do. Like, From like a budget perspective, a COVID perspective, and a like, you know, we are all a different place than I am perspective. So I'm doing a little giveaway of what I'm calling anti-brunch society pins. You may or may not have seen this on Instagram because, well, Instagram is definitely not showing my post to many people right now after accusing me of buying followers last week after one of our posts did really, really well. I mean, (laughs) who has money in 2020 to buy followers? That almost kind of rhymed, huh? Sorry, I'm just popular. (laughs) Anyway, I digress. You might recall in last week's episode that Jillian and I were talking about brunch as an analog for fast fashion, and it sort of planted the seed for both of us, this like anti-brunch movement, also If you listen to the department, I've had a couple just tirades about brunch. So I have very strong anti-brunch feelings. I'm hereby declaring that brunch and hashtag brunch life and brunch dresses and brunch outfits and all of that, all of it is a metaphor for political apathy, blind consumption, and weekly fast fashion shopping sprees. And you know I'm right. Brunch is the all-day event of those who, quote, just want things to go back to normal. Brunch is the meal, event, lifestyle of the privileged people who think normal is just fine for them. Brunch is the official meal of, quote, COVID only really affects old people. Brunch is the meal for people who think the only way you can have a hashtag date night is in a restaurant, which, come on, guys. There's a whole world out there where you can be romantic. <laughs> I'm hereby declaring that Clothes Horse is the official podcast of the hashtag anti-brunch society because we know that what was normal was broken, that normal exploited workers, kept people in poverty, destroyed the planet, and filled our landfills with just like the saddest barely worn clothing. Normal was racist, classist, fatphobic, ableist, cruel, wasteful, and self-absorbed. And I think boring. I think normal was boring. 
Normal would periodically declare, I'm just not a political person. Barf. Close Horse supports all other meals. We think breakfast for dinner is like the best dinner. Close Horse also believes that we should do anything we can to support restaurants and restaurant workers. But we should skip brunch and use that time to change the world. That's why I'm giving away 75 of these anti-brunch society pins to you, the awesome listeners and supporters of Close Horse. You can check them out on Instagram. They're totally on the feed. And if you want one, you just literally need to DM me on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast or call the Close Horse hotline and leave me a message or email me at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. I also suppose if you happen to know my real phone number in real life, you could text me there too. Also, anyone who signs up as a patron this month that is December, will also get a pin, no matter what tier they are. So you sign up for $3 where you would get a sticker, you're also going to get an anti-brunch society pin. I just want to thank Jillian for planting the seed and kind of fleshing it out with me. I was going to say fertilizing, but that seemed gross. (laughs) And also to Dustin Travis White, our audio producer and music creator, for designing the pin for me. Thank you so much, Dustin. The pin itself is ethically made of recycled materials in Portland, Oregon. If you would like to support the show and me via Patreon, you can find more information at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. And of course, I'm going to put that link in the show notes. (laughs) If you can't become a patron though, don't forget, that's totally fine. Hey, this is the weirdest, worst year ever, right? (laughs) And if you love the show, there are so many other ways that you can support it that don't cost any money at all. You could recommend it to a friend, share and save our content on Instagram, leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. I love that. That's like kind of my favorite. Or just don't do any of that because that's fine too. And just keep listening because if you don't listen, then there's not a podcast. So you're doing a lot just by listening. Okay. Do you hear that sound? It's the clothes horse hotline ringing. Man, I wish I could do like an impression of a phone ringing. Like that guy in the police academy movies who could do all the sounds. Be amazing if I could do like a phone ringing sound. I can't. So use your imagination. The phone's ringing and it's our friend Elena of Gooder Gift Guide. Hi, Amanda. It's Elena. I was just realizing I never called to tell you more about my carnivorous plant collection that I think I once mentioned in a DM. Basically, when I was a kid, I realized through a science camp that carnivorous plants existed, and then there was a big carnivorous plant nursery about an hour and a half from where I lived in San Francisco. And so instead of spending my allowance money that I was fortunate to have on clothes, I would go up and spend it on plants. And so by the time I was about 13 or 14, I had a collection of over 100 different species of carnivorous plants, including a bunch of plants in a four-foot-long terrarium with timed grow lights in our basement, and then a big table of plants in our bay window upstairs in my mom's office. Uh, Obviously, very lucky to have indulgent parents, but 
funny thing is uh, I turned this collection into a research project in college and then some more research that I did after college before um, the career I ended up having. Uh, so anyway, sometimes those kid collections really go somewhere. Uh, and that's, that's really the story on that. I also just wanted to say thanks so much for your team list. I just shot you an email about the timing for that, but wanted to voice my appreciation for your support of Gooder and for sharing us on the podcast and your stories and the post. We're really excited for your list to go up on Monday, and we'll be announcing you as um, one of our guests on Friday tomorrow. So thanks again for being a, a friend on the, the Internet um, for Gooder, and I've just been enjoying everything that you create. Bye. Thanks for calling, Elena. And remind me that I need advice about this pitcher plant that I'm totally very slowly killing and I feel terrible about it. Maybe it's too dry. I don't know. It's turning brown. Let's talk. Anyway, as Elena mentioned, I put together a little list of teen gifts for Gooder Gift Guide and the list will be coming out tomorrow, Monday. If you want to give good gifts from good businesses this year, then I suggest checking out Gooder right now. You can find them on Instagram at Gooder Gift Guide. You know, it's hard to find smaller designers, makers, and businesses because, you know, they don't have the budget to blow up your feed with ads, right? So let Gooder do the work for you. They have all kinds of super rad people from all over the country with all kinds of areas of expertise and different tastes. And it's, they're pulling together a list of all of their favorite places. So, you're going to find something awesome there. Well, you're not going to believe this, but the phone is ringing again. No sound effect, unfortunately. And it's our good friend, a regular caller here at the show, Selena Sanders. Hey, Amanda. It's Selena Sanders. I actually wanted to call because I had started to listen to your other podcast that you co-host with Kim, the department. And I have to say, I love your podcast with her as well. Um, I started off with uh, the Girl Boss series, or two episodes, I mean. So I've gotten um, a lot of things in my, you know, my mind since then, and there's actually two things in particular that I'm thinking about. And I wanted to call the hotline because I was wondering what your take was on these two things. So first, um, I don't know if you have been seeing this big hoopla about – Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's um, Tax the Rich sweatshirt. Um, she has other merch um, to raise money on her website. There's one that says, drink water and don't be racist. Tax the Rich, um, the Green New Deal, which I secretly wanted, but um, it's now sold out. Um, there's also one that just says AOC and then um, a couple more things like social, economic, and racial justice, fight for our future. Um, you know, all this political merch. Um, although I I do have some strong feelings about um, making merchandise to politicize uh, movements, which I know that you guys talked about at the department. Um, I do also completely understand that she has to do this to raise money. And um, there are just a lot of negative, you know, things that have come out since then. And one of them was um, – from a Remake Our World, which I follow um, on Instagram, and they were just kind of pointing out that just because it's made in the USA doesn't necessarily mean it's 
always good, and I completely agree with that. I'm a supporter of Garment Worker Center, so I, I know that a lot of the things that are made in the U.S. not necessarily always uh, in best conditions. And then organic cotton, well, you've spoken about that on your podcast before, so I'm sure your listeners already also understand that. But it all comes down to pricing. I think there was a lot of people on the right that were uh, criticizing AOC for basically saying, oh, $58, like that's really expensive. This is the part where it gets really complicated. And I know that this is something that you cover on your podcast quite a bit, which leads me to my next thought, which I think is very interconnected. And that is hashtag I quit fast fashion because... Um, a friend of mine on Instagram posted today that um, she completely understands this movement, our hashtag, trending hashtag, but she also feels like this may be a little bit of an elitist stance just because for certain people who may not have a certain amount of money that they bring into their incomes, this is sort of a luxury because for low-income people, it's really hard to quit fast fashion because really that's based on your budget and how much you make. Clothes, you know, become at the bottom of the list. But at the same time, people still don't want to sacrifice their style. They still want to express themselves. So there are, there are certain people that cannot quit fast fashion. On top of that, because she belongs in a demographic that is of women of plus size, it's also a lot harder to do this. Um and then on top of that, she loves and follows all the vintage, vintage resellers and, like, people like myself who may also be offering extended sizing, but our price points are just too high for her that um, she doesn't have the luxury to, unfortunately, buy a 15-piece capsule of things that are worth over 150 or $250 a piece or more. And I think about this all the time because I am – like I said, when I was a guest at your podcast, I'm very sensitive to um, the price points. That way, a, a whole lot of people can afford them. But at the same time, there's also this struggle to be able to pay ourselves a living wage and also the people that we are hiring to help us make this product. It's so systematic and deeply rooted, and I think it's beyond all these hashtags and all these trends. And I just kind of wanted to get your um, your point as to, like, how do we try to combat that, at least, or try to be able to um, have people afford our product, but at the same time still be able to find that balance to pay ourselves and our workers a living wage. It's almost like a reprogramming of our brains and our systems, because in reality, I feel this, should, this price that we are um, charging people should be the normal price. It shouldn't be the expensive price. Um, yeah, so just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts about these two things. I just wanted to let you know I am – I'm really embarrassed to say I'm so obsessed with you. I have to download my my son. Okay, Um. sorry. I was just going to say I'm, like, really obsessed with you and now Kim – and um, obviously, I don't want everything to be highly from a political standpoint, but um, everything is interconnected. Policy is very important, um, and I know that you agree. But again, I feel like I look up, I look to you for your expertise, and this is something that I would love for you to maybe 
talk about or just cover for a couple of minutes. Anyway, have a great day. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. So fun fact, literally as Selena was leaving that message, I was posting about what she talked about on Instagram. (laughs) Seriously, guys, I don't know if it's always this way or if it's like, like weird quarantine hive brain that we're all having, but like, I feel like we're so frequently on the same wavelength. And I just think that's so interesting that there's so many like ideas out there in the ether that are hitting us all at the same time. I think it's good. So let's start with all that stuff with AOC because Selena talked about a lot here and it's all really important. So like I mentioned, I just posted about this on Instagram today. At Uba Outfits looped me in on the AOC controversy. And I have to start this by saying I love AOC. Like she is so rad, so real. You know, people talk all the time about like a politician that they would like to have a beer with or whatever. I would love to get drinks with AOC and talk to her about fashion, retail, classism, racism. I mean, she's a proud outfit repeater. She loves secondhand shopping. I mean, she's just, she's one of us, right? Well, as you know, Republicans who are literally looking for any reason to get their panties in a bunch about her, they're freaking out because she has this tax the rich sweatshirt that's $58. Their argument is that it's too expensive. And I'm just like, uh, guys, $58 is not too expensive for a sweatshirt. Like, actual like one percenters wouldn't be caught dead buying a $58 sweatshirt. And actually, I think it's too cheap because as I'm always saying, our concept of value and the price of clothing has been so skewed over the last decade. Apparently it's happening for Republicans too. And that's thanks to the rise of fast fashion and its influence on the entire garment industry, which is like don't know how much stuff should cost. And we kind of, we don't know the ingredients involved in making it, right? This $58 price doesn't seem possible if the workers are paid a living wage and the fabric is reasonably nice. Unfortunately, the whole public, right? All of us, everyone in the, in the country, in the world, whatever, we should look at a $58 sweatshirt and see that as cheap, that it doesn't add up. But you know, as I'm always saying, we've kind of forgotten the cost, the actual cost of making clothing. We don't understand the skill and the time that's needed to actually produce an article of clothing. And so we don't understand the full value of what we're getting. And it's it's not our fault, right? Like this just kind of happened very slowly and fast at the same time. And it's really a problem that really came to fruition, that really developed in this century. I mean, we have so much work to get to that point where we all understand it again. And it's going to involve educating ourselves and one another and everyone around us about the true cost of things. And also, it's going to involve us all realizing that it's better to have a few good things than a closet that's just like bursting with meh, disappointing things, right? Of course, if we're all going to be able to afford to buy these nice things, we need to do something about poverty all over the world, including here in the U.S., so people can afford to pay the true cost of things. 
But until we get there, fast fashion fills a need for people with less money. So the AOC sweatshirt says it's made in the USA, which brings me to my next issue, right? It says it's printed in union shops and it's 100% cotton. So let's, let's break those things down there. I'm going to tell you, the only meaningful thing from that list for me is that the printing happened in union shops. That's great because it guarantees a living wage and safe working conditions for the workers. But I feel like you know what's coming here, right? You've listened to the show long enough. What about the people who made the fabric and sewed the garment? (laughs) Jeez, what about them, right? Made in the USA means nothing to me. And we've talked about this pretty early on in the show. I want to say episode three and four, five and six, something like that with Amy. The U.S. garment industry exploits workers just as terribly as overseas factories, often paying them pennies to sew by the piece, meaning they don't have to pay an hourly wage. They practice all kinds of wage theft by changing the payment structure after the work is done. I mean, imagine going to work. Your boss says, hey, you're going to get paid $20 an hour today. You work eight hours. You think you're going to get paid $160. And at the end of the day, you put in all that work. The, the boss says, oh, psych, I'm only going to pay you $10 an hour. Sorry, I forgot to tell you that. And so suddenly you're walking home with half as much money. That's happening in the domestic garment industry all the time. Furthermore, these workers are provided no benefits because they're designated as contract workers. I mean, it's terrible, right? It's a shameful that that's happening in our own country. And you know what? The domestic garment industry here in the U.S. relies on exploiting immigrant women. And if you think it's just a problem for the United States, I can assure you it's also a problem in the U.K., and probably in other countries as well. But for right now, we're talking about Made in the USA. There's an idea out there that Made in the USA is better, that it's ethical, that it's sustainable. None of those things are true. They can be true, but they're not always true. And in fact, more often than not, they are not true. So I guess what I'm saying is I need to know more, AOC. Like, Show me the factories. Are you using the factory that pays a living wage and where the people work under great conditions? Fuck yeah. Show it to me. Show me the sewers. How are they doing? Do they have health insurance? How many hours a week are they working? Okay, well, what about the people making the fabric? What's going on in the textile mill? How about in the dye house? I mean, there's so much going on here. I don't expect that kind of accountability from all the like the MAGA merch people, which there are a ton of them. But you know what? They also support a racist misogynist, so I don't expect much from them. But like I said, I see AOC as one of us, one of us who cares about the poor, the working class, the environment, things that matter to us, matter to her. So I expect better from her. I expect a higher level of accountability. Now, I don't know where the proceeds from sales go, and I can't find it anywhere on the site. But I will say that if you want to support AOC and her work, which you should, just make a direct donation. I think it's our first mini-sode ever. I talk about how ultimately the like buying stuff and a portion of the proceeds kind of model, it's not as beneficial. And we just end up with a lot of stuff we don't really want to wear. 
you can buy this sweatshirt or any of the t-shirts from her website, but you have to promise me and yourself that you're going to wear it all the time for years. Otherwise, if you're just buying it to support a cause or wear once, you know what? Put your credit card away, okay? (laughs) Because there's no factory, no fabric, no mission that makes it okay to buy tons of clothes that we barely wear. Once again, you're going to wear that Tax the Rich shirt once a week for the next, I don't know, two to three years? Go for it. I support it. You're going to buy it and wear it once or twice? No. In her message, Selena talks about the hashtag girl boss episodes of The Department, my other podcast, and we talk a lot about all the feminist teas of like 2017, 2018. We're talking the future is female, wild feminist. I know there were a lot of like Elizabeth Warren teas, like still she persisted, or how about nasty woman, all of those things. When was the last time you saw someone wear one of those? You know, millions upon millions of those teas were sold, and now they're just sitting in people's dresser drawers. I mean, we just don't need more of that, right? I think we've all proven that we just don't wear those things enough. Now, going back to AOC here, I'm guessing that she she knows nothing about this product. I mean, I'm sure she signed off on it, but you know, but she, someone from her campaign really handled the creation of this product. So I'm not like, OMG, AOC, I'm so mad at you, but I want them to get it right. Because like I said, we can do better. We should do better. And I think of AOC as one of us and therefore wanting to try her hardest to do it better. I've been kind of personally, and like I think, you know, I think about this stuff all the time, as I'm sure you've guessed. I've been sort of adopting progress, not perfection as my sort of like modus operandi when it comes to sustainability and consumerism for me on a personal level. And it basically means like, you know, for example, yes, I would love a fully ethical, fully sustainable bra right now, but I can't afford it. And all my bras all in one week just sort of disintegrated into like dust, just dust and bits of plastic. So you know what? I had to order a few from Target. Like that's what I can afford right now after being unemployed for eight months. But you know what? I'm going to take care of them by hand washing and line drying them. I'm not going to use the dryer. I'm not going to ball them up in the hamper. I'm not going to, you know, throw a wet towel on them and let them sit in the hamper for a while. I'm going to make them last as long as possible. Is that perfection from a sustainability standpoint? No, but it is a lot of progress. And I'm consciously mitigating my waste like every day. That's what I ask of you. So-called sustainable clothes, they're expensive. So just buy less if you can't afford them. Buy secondhand. Make it last. Use less plastic stuff. Or you have an Etsy shop and the only shipping mailers you can have that you can afford or find are plastic. Hey, so it goes. Maybe encourage your customers to reuse them. You know, it's it's not the end of the world. We're not going to fix everything overnight because we don't have all the resources to make our dream of reality just like that. Progress, not perfection. That said, I do think AOC and her campaign have the resources and connections to come a little bit closer to perfection with their manufacturing. So 
hey, if you know them, could you just pass that on to them? <laughs> okay, so that brings me to the second half of Selena's message, which is about the hashtag I quit fast fashion because movement. I guess it's a movement. Is it just a hashtag? I feel like in 2020, it's sort of hard to determine the difference between a hashtag and a movement sometimes, right? Well, if you've noticed, I haven't posted about this at all on Instagram, even though, hey, if you haven't guessed or if you haven't heard, I suppose, I want the entire industry to die. I want it to go away. So why haven't I posted about it? Well, let's examine where we are in 2020, 2020, you might call it. The middle class is rapidly disappearing. I mean, it was for a long time, but this year it's like exponentially faster. There are roughly at least at least 13 million unemployed American adults right now. Businesses are closing at a rapid pace and many people are facing eviction. And guess what? They need clothes, coats, socks, underwear, tights, pajamas, you name it. And fast fashion is what they can afford. Yeah, it sucks. I agree. But the only way that changes is through a magical combination. And I mean, it's like so magical because it's like everybody in the country gets lifted out of poverty. Everyone gets a job that they like, that pays them a living wage. It's the end of systemic racism. And with that then comes the end of fast fashion because people can afford to buy better. So guess what? <laughs> that magical time hasn't come yet, but it's what we're trying to make happen. Once again, progress, not perfection. So guess what? Quitting fast fashion just isn't an option for everyone. It's actually a really privileged position to be in. But wait, there's more. <laughs> because finding secondhand clothing in your size is also a privilege. Larger size clothing is a lot harder to find and it's often more expensive in the secondhand market because it's harder to find. Oh, but why don't you buy some sustainable larger clothing? Oh, guess what? Because most of the sustainable brands out there right now don't make clothes in larger sizes. So even if you had the money to buy fancy sustainable clothes, if you're larger than say a size 12 or 14, you're out of luck because once again, fast fashion is the one segment of the industry that has decided to make clothing in a lot of options in larger sizes. Forever 21, Fashion Nova, Torrid, these companies sell affordable clothing that is also available in a lot more sizes. Do I love that? No, but I also recognize that the fashion industry as a whole has ignored larger people for decades. So there isn't a lot of good quality secondhand clothing out there really over a size 14. I mean, there's some, but not much. So if you have the financial means and you have the size privilege to quit fast fashion, well, please go for it. That segment of the industry needs your money to grow. And withholding your money from the assholes of the world will make a difference. And I'll say this, all of us, no matter our income level, we do need to break up with the idea of fast fashion. Perhaps I would call it the lifestyle of fast fashion. You know, only wearing things a few times, 
viewing clothing as disposable, buying an outfit to wear only one time for one occasion, that all needs to end. That's the fast fashion that everyone needs to quit. But I realize that a lot of people can't quit actually buying fast fashion for the reasons I just mentioned. So it's elitist to assume that everyone can. I mean, I think it might even be classist to judge people for the clothing they buy. And you know how I feel about classism. It's just too easy to boil a really complex issue like this down to a handy little hashtag because in reality, everything is so full of gray areas and what ifs. And I guess I'm just saying, if you need a hashtag to define your buying habits, may I suggest hashtag progress, not perfection, or hashtag buy less, or hashtag don't give your money to assholes. I have so many more thoughts there. I'm sure you can tell I'm like really on a roll, but I'll save those for the next episode. And thank you for calling, Selena. You always get the wheels in my brain turning. (laughs) And if you, yes, you have a question, comment, story to share with me or the rest of the Close Horse community here, please call the Close Horse hotline. It's fun. It's easy. It's really just a voicemail. 717-925-7417. I get so excited when I get a message. Okay. It's the moment we've all been waiting for. Let's meet Claire. Normally I would give a whole long introduction, but I honestly think that Claire will do a better job of it than me. (laughs) Because the first time I talked to her on the phone, she just really sold me. (laughs) So, Claire, why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Claire Duty. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I am a plus-size clothing designer and fashion show producer. I always feel so silly saying that, but, you know. (laughs) Hey, that's a hard job. That's a hard job. (laughs) It is. (laughs) My sister actually went to school for that at FITM in LA. Oh, wow. I didn't even even know we could go to school for that. I mean, you know. Me neither. (laughs) Study anything nowadays. (laughs) So when I talked to you, like, you know, pre-gaming for this interview, I was like, so, you know, like, tell me about yourself. And you said, it was a long journey. (laughs) And I liked that because then it was a long journey. (laughs) I don't think that's through the whole journey. <laughs> so I know that you went to a weirdo art kids school, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, you had a whole sewing journey that began there. Yeah. Um, so I went to, I was very fortunate and uh, I went to a school in Seattle called the Northwest School, which is, um, they have a very long title, but basically it's... Um, it is a school that they really believe in the arts. And so we did about an hour and a half of art every day and they had all different mediums. So we had dance, uh, 2D arts, um, ceramics. There was orchestra, jazz band, theater. Um, and this is like my dream school. Like I want to be a kid again and get to go to this school. Yeah. I kind of wish that I, sometimes I wish I could have a do over because 
you know, when you're, it was a middle school, high school. And when you're, what is that? 12 to 18. You're like, oh, you're like unbearable. Like, you know, yeah. like, I want to <laughs> grow up and move into my own apartment. And then you're like, wait, oh, I made a mistake. <laughs> yes, I know. Why do we not appreciate it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I started sewing when I was eight. I started doing uh, like my version of cross stitch, which was basically like drawing with thread, um, probably around seven or eight as well. And knitting started around nine or 10. And fiber arts has always been my medium that I love to use. And uh, when I went to Northwest, it was great because, you know, I got to be in seventh grade and take fiber arts and learn how to weave. You know, when I was in high school, I had my chemistry teacher did uh, natural dyeing techniques. That is so cool. Chemistry class. And um, we used to have, you know, a whole bunch of amazing performances throughout the year. We'd have different community members come in and do performances. And um, everyone was always really supportive of people wanting to explore outside of what they just offered, which was, you know, amazing compared to most um, schools or, you know, my peers that were going to other schools. And um, so one of the things that I did was, I believe it was in ninth grade, we, so we did some service projects and we would go to uh, migrant farm workers camps and clean up their camps and uh, redo, you know, clean up the houses, get it ready for the season. I mean, I say houses, but that is a generous Yes, name. definitely, so definitely. Facts. And yeah. so something that I noticed was that there was, there were no curtains and there were no um, room dividers or doors or anything. And, you know, there was families with teenagers living in there and multiple children. And um, so we came up with the idea of doing a fundraiser to make some money to be able to buy fabric to make curtains and room dividers for that. And um, that kind of coincided with us, uh, some friends of mine and myself planning a fashion show um, when we were in, I think this was ninth grade. And so we ended up planning a fashion show and doing it in the school during school hours. We had this thing called community meeting, which was an hour long every Thursday, the whole entire school got together and we did, you know, there was speakers or presentations or different things. And so we did a fashion show during community meeting and then we did a fashion show at night and sold tickets to it so that we can make money to make the curtains. And so, um, you know, it felt like a very now looking back as a full fledged adult. Um, that sounds very strange to say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, realizing like how incredibly awesome that is and that that is not the normal high school experience for people. No, definitely Um, not. So I felt very fortunate that that was kind of the beginning of it. And, um, I had, uh, one teacher in high school specifically who really inspired me. Um, he, was an amazing fiber artist and he did I did a weaving um class with him and then I did uh kind of a oh what do you call that like a independent study thank you (laughs) (laughs) coming in my brain and grabbing that Um, (laughs) independent study in advanced weaving with him and so I learned you know even more complicated techniques and learned how to use looms and 
um, it was just very inspiring to me. And he really encouraged me that, you know, there's, there's colleges out there that you can pursue this and that it is something that is, you know, a viable lifestyle and source of income and pleasure. And so it, um, was a super big inspiration to me. And I know that I shared with you my fun fact about him. He he has passed away, but um, he, if anyone's ever seen the movie Fame, he is the one that jumps on top of the cab and dances and then- I mean, I remember this so clearly because I was obsessed with that when I was a kid. Like fame was everything. We somehow we had a VHS of it. I don't know how. <laughs> My version of fame for me, obsession as a kid, would be Newsies. I choreographed dance and sang it at my eighth grade graduation with three of my girlfriends to King of New York. You know, this is going to sound so weird, but this makes sense to me. <laughs> like I can't explain it, but I'd be like, yeah, yeah, she's a Newsies gal. I can tell. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad, you know, I don't have to explain it any further and you understand me that deeply. <laughs> like I've known, you know, like, you know how different people remind you of other people mm-hmm. and you totally remind me of a friend I had in college who was obsessed with Newsies and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's that's who you are. Yep, yep. <laughs> Just a friendly, awkward musical theater kid here. <laughs> I mean, I do remember seeing Newsies in the theater and it was like a big night out for me. So I have very, very fond memories associated with it, but I'm more of a fame gal. So, you know. I, mean, I get it. They are, both, <laughs> they are both great and I appreciate them for their own. <laughs> so you went to college for fiber art, sort of. Well, also costume design, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I went to uh, Fairhaven College at Western Washington University up in Bellingham and they at Fairhaven it's an interdisciplinary college and so you basically get to design your own major and so I took classes from the fiber arts department and the art department and all the classes uh in costume design from the theater department and mushed them together into (laughs) one um you know strange hodgepodge of a thing (laughs) it sounds amazing though you know it was and it was it was nice because I actually like originally when I went to college I wanted to first I wanted to major in home ec which then I found out that I would have to go to like North Dakota or Oklahoma it was like too middle I was like, Mm-mm, not happening I mean I do also like sometimes wish I could go back in time and go to school for home ec mm-hmm. like now I'm like that would be amazing imagining teaching people how to, you know, care for their homes and cook and so, but mm-hmm. also not a lot of jobs there. No, no. Yeah. And I, I think it also was just like this dream of mine because, um, you know, standing my own privilege here, like I, I went to private school for, well, I went to public school for one week um, and then went into private school and was in private school for most of my education until I went to college and went back to a public university. But um, I think that I had this like dream of what home ec was like because we never had it. And, <laughs> but, like no one in our generation really had it. Like some people who lived in, you know, teeny towns, maybe, but like mm-hmm. it wasn't really a, a widespread available thought. I know that makes me so sad. So I grew up in Pennsylvania where it was a law that you had to take home ec. Everyone did. 
And so I just assumed everyone else had. And I, that was like my favorite thing about junior high was home ac. It was so fun, but you couldn't like act too much like it was too fun or you'd be uncool. But I was definitely uncool anyway. So I don't know why I wasn't just like running in there and like singing about how much I loved home ec every day. It wouldn't have made a difference. (laughs) We would have been friends. One of my best friends, when I met her boyfriend for the first time, um, after they met, they went home and she was like, so... Most of my, a lot of my friends just call me duty. And so she's like, what do you think about duty? And he's like, I just love how much she sings everything. Like <laughs> I wouldn't be talking to you. And then I'll just start singing like a random part of, of the sentence. Or if I'm doing something by myself, I'm definitely, I, you know, it's like, what's that? Who is it? Snow White, I guess, sings. Yes, no yeah. Critters come. No critters come, but I just sing. You know, when I... So I was single for a really, really long time. Like I would date people here and there, but I was like very sort of fiercely protective of my own life. And so when my husband and I moved in together and then got married, one of the biggest adjustments is that I felt as if I couldn't sing all the time anymore, which is what I would mostly do when I was home alone, Mm -hmm. you know, and sing in the car. Like I love just going for a drive and singing like the whole time. Oh, yeah. And my grandma, I think my grandma started that with me because we would just go out to run errands and just, you know, be singing all the hits the whole time. I love that. I know. I think singing is so, even if, and I'm not a good singer, but it just feels so good to sing. Oh, yeah. I agree. Yeah. So, I mean, you love Newsies, so I get it. Mm-hmm. It all adds up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. So you did costume design in school yes. and I you know what I thought was, it was, I don't know. We have a common friend who's like an integral part of your like kind of growing up story, which blew my mind, which is Ty <laughs> yeah. of Intentionally Blank. I feel like he's just this like magical creature who touches all these different creative people's lives. He truly is. He's like the best fairy god you could ever have. <laughs> he is. He really, really is. Um, so why don't you talk about, you know, you did some cool stuff with him. Yeah. So I met Ty. Um, he owned two. Well, at the time he owned one store, Paris, Texas and Bellingham. And it was the coolest store in town. Um, of course. Of course. Right. And so I, um, you know, being the classic fat teenager would go in and just buy accessories at stores because that was what is available um, in my size. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I, but I became a little bit of a shoe hoarder and Ty saw that and latched onto it as any good person in retail will. And <laughs> um, so, you know, I would go in there all the time and he would have great shoes that, you know, he knew that I would love. And I also wear a size 10 shoe which sometimes an 11 depending on how the shoe fits and so uh-huh. like, there was one size 10 and oh always that's how they're pre-packed yeah and so uh, he he knew and um so we just you know started becoming buddies from me going in there and shopping so much and then one day he actually asked me if I had ever done any jewelry design and I was like I've made stuff for my friends but you know uh, no, not really. And he asked me if I wanted to design some pieces to sell in his store. And so, of course, being the, you know, 
broke college student, um, I was like, yeah, I want to do that. That's, you know, weed and beer money. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, so I started a line which was called Duty Style, um, which was uh, kind of a riff off of some of my good friends. I I always have worn weird things. And like <laughs> this time there was a phase that I was wearing. I hate jeans. I call them. Me like, too. Like I hate them. Because they're horrible. And they're horrible. I don't Why are they so popular? I think it's because they're easy and you like look like you know what you're doing when you get them on or something. Do you? I don't understand those people because I'm not one of them. So Yeah, me neither. I don't get it. I'm like, oh, so uncomfortable and awkward. Like, why do you want a button digging into you? And why do you want like just watching everyone always hike them up 27 times a day? Yes. Or they're like, oh, my underwear is going up my butt. Yeah, that's the jeans yeah. doing that. Yeah. It's the worst. Yeah. So I was into like – I was fakely into wearing jeans because I would wear jeans and oh god, this is I would I would wear jeans with vintage aprons um, that I would wear and I would put the apron like ties through my belt loops and tie a little bow in the back. <laughs> yeah, but that was the time. It was, but also like, thinking about it now, just like oh. I mean, this was I think around the same time I was going through a phase that also makes me embarrassed, which is that I would wear dresses over jeans. Remember that? Oh yeah. Because yeah. you know why I was doing that? Because I'm not a jeans person. Mm-hmm. I was just trying to be cool and hang out. I know, I know. Like, look at me in my jeans. Mm -mm, Nope. I am confident and comfortable in my non-denim ways. (laughs) Me too. Me too. Yeah. So I was – I don't know why this memory just popped in my head. My first – my first quote-unquote collection that I did for Ty, um, I remember trying to figure out a cool way to, like – put them on something like a, you know, an earring card, but I just like couldn't figure it out. And I got, um, airmail international envelopes and full and like put the earrings on that and just thought I was so cool. <laughs> um, and it kind of evolved from there. Then I ended up getting into another shop in town because of Ty. And then Ty was opening a second store called Frank James, which this was, 2003 2004 maybe um so like height of designer denim times mm-hmm. and you know it was a college town basically bellingham is split between college and retirement and there's like nothing in between so uh you know in a college town with a lot of gals that love high end denim and um so ty opened up a store and i once again, I had an independent study, remembered it there. Oh, right, right. <laughs> and I was like, hey, can I help you open the store and like shadow you and see what you're doing? And you don't have to pay me any money because I'll do college credit. And so, of course, he said yes. Um, and then that kind of morphed into me becoming the first sort of manager of the store, which you know, it was, I think it was 250 square feet. It was teeny. Um, but I loved it. I have worked retail. I mean, I don't anymore, but I worked retail 
I started at like 12 or 13 under the table for my mom's best friend who owned a garden store and mm-hmm. home. And so I love selling things and I'm really good at it. I could see that. <laughs> New- I've heard that like statistically Newsies fans are way better at selling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I did say King of New York, so I have to get there somehow. Yeah, totally. <laughs> oh oh, newsies um but yeah so then I was working at Frank James and doing that and then I had to do part of part of my um education at Fairhaven is you do a senior project and so I decided that I wanted to go to New York um and work for someone. And I didn't know who at the point, at that point, but um, I said that to Ty and he was like, well, let me make a call. And so he called his friend, Lewis, um, who, uh, well, I believe he's the owner again. I think the bank. Yeah. They got it back. Yeah. They got it back. Yeah. 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 So he was the owner of Oak and his partner, Andrew at the time had his own line. And so basically it was just like, Bing, bang, boom. Here you go. You have an internship in New York with a designer who is working and doing everything. And um, it was amazing because he also at the time was applying for the CFDA um, program award. I don't know what they call it. <laughs> plaque, Pla- trophy. Plaque, I have no idea. Plaques, you know, that's the <laughs> word nowadays. Um, and so I even got to like witness that whole um application process and it was great because I just got to see everything you know I went Mm -hmm. to dye houses I went to production sewers I went to stores that only sold buttons I went to like you name it I did it all while also getting lost in nowhere Brooklyn trying to find places and trying to you know Mm -hmm. this was pre pre pre-lift pre-uber days so (laughs) Trying to be like, oh shit, what subway do I take and like end up in the wrong place? And mm-hmm. uh, I was like living on Bedford Avenue in Bed-Stuy uh, when I remember my I was the only one out of like my five friends who all lived around us that didn't get mugged on the way to the subway. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was quite an accomplishment. Um, yeah. But, so I worked with Andrew and, and also – because of the jewelry, Ty was like, hey, I actually think I can hook you up with a paying gig. Um, and it was this company that did private label manufacturing um, jewelry design. And they, so I ended up doing sample work for them while I was there. And I remember I was completely floored because both Torrid and... I think it was Torrid, Hot Topic, and Urban Outfitters all picked up some of the jewelry that I designed. Wow. I wonder, I because like this was the era when I was working at Urban Outfitters, and mm-hmm. I'm like, what was it? <laughs> it was, um, I did a couple different stories. One of them was like a story that had, um, and a story, sorry, a story is like 25 pairs of earrings, 15 necklaces, 10 bracelets, a couple brooches, and maybe some hair things. And it's all they correspond with each other and, you know, there's a theme. Mm-hmm. Really. So I did, I did a skull story that had these like pink 
there's like three different shades of pink um resin skulls i believe that they were with rhinestone eyes it was very um oh no i can't believe that i'm forgetting her name right now but this jewelry designer needs to be obsessed with but also like very betsy johnson just like charm bracelet mm-hmm. you know kind of old lady inspired yeah i can so. totally i can totally picture this mm-hmm. and and then i also did like a story that had a bunch of wings i want to say Oh, um, yeah. And then there was also, like, some tropical birds, I think. Mm-hmm. I can't even remember anything. But at the time, I remember thinking it was so incredible that I was, like, working for a jewelry company in New York, and they bought my stories. And one of my stories was purchased for, like, well, from the company that I worked for. They bought it from me for $250. And I remember the time as being like, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> and I remember like five years later being in Torrid in the mall and seeing the story that I did still being sold at Torrid. I was like, what the fuck? They have oh, yeah. No doubt. Thousands of dollars off of me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, because even like when you're talking about the wings, I was like, huh, I wonder if that's – I remember we had a wing necklace and a wing earring at Urban Outfitters that we had for years. Oh, yeah. It's quite and I'm wondering awesome. if it was that. I mean, like – because jewelry and stores like that tends to be like a reorder kind of situation. Yeah. You know, once you find – you kind of buy a lot of stuff and then when you find what people like, you just keep buying that. Yeah. Until well, they don't buy it anymore. And like I remember – I mean <laughs> – I feel like this will blow people's minds, but if if something was over a dollar forty two to produce, it was too much. Oh, like not people, blowing my mind I at all. In your mind, <laughs> people need to understand the difference between costume jewelry and fine jewelry, and people need to understand that the shit is the shit that is costume jewelry is so cheaply produced, and that. That is a huge space that most retail makes a lot of their money off of. Oh, yeah. Usually in most stores, unless they're totally blowing it, the jewelry and like hair clips, like the small Mm -hmm. accessories like that are the most profitable thing that they sell in the whole store. Yeah. So we're talking things being – Insane. Yeah. Being marked up four, five times of their cost, maybe even more – depending on where they got it. And that gets really crazy when you think about like in the early odds, I like to go to Forever 21 where all the jewelry was like $2.90. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's it, so gross. Yeah. You know, like yeah. to think so about it now. 15 pack of earrings and it was $7. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I had so much crazy jewelry from Forever 21 that ultimately was like future garbage because, mm-hmm. you know, it would like the finish would rub off. It would break. It was just gross. So I was working with Andrew and working um, with the private label company. In two different worlds, kind of. Like totally. two totally different customers and prices and just oh. vibes, you know? Oh, yeah. And I I definitely gleaned a lot from both of those. But mm-hmm. also what I gleaned from that was like, okay. as like Because I've – since I've been a little girl, I've wanted to be a clothing designer. And when I did that, then I was like – I should be a jewelry designer <laughs> where I can make more money. <laughs> and so I went back um, to Bellingham because this was like over the summer that I was in New York, but I was still like in summer school and doing that. And I had, I think I had two more quarters after that. And um, 
so within that time, then I decided with one of my girlfriends that we were going to move to Portland together and that we were going to open a store and, um, we started looking for stuff and she had done, um, we have this thing in Washington called running or running start, head start, head start. Uh, no running start. Sorry. I can't remember one of them. (laughs) (laughs) And basically like you can do, you can get your AA while you're still in high school. Um, you did that. And so she graduated, she graduated when we were sophomores, even though, you know, she was, Mm -hmm. so she left, but she still lived in close a couple hours away. And we decided that we were going to open a store together and it was going to be amazing. And, um, a couple months before we were going to like go down to Portland and look for storefronts. Cause at the time you could find an adorable house and have a store on the bottom level and live above it. And it would cost you like a thousand dollars a month. And that was amazing. And she ended up having a like very spontaneous and horrific divorce and oh, wow. was just like, I can't do this. I, you know, my life has dramatically changed, blah, blah, blah. And so I was definitely disappointed and also just like, well, shit, this was my grand plan. And uh, I told everyone I knew. And now I have to tell them that that's not happening. Um, and I remember just being like so devastated. Yeah, that's terrible. Just going to tell everyone. And I'm like, that's just such a early 20s me thing of like, I don't want to disappoint them. (laughs) None of them probably even remembered that that was my plan. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I I like hear you. Gosh, I can think of so many things from that time of my life that I was, I felt like, I don't know, nothing was going the way I'd said, I had said to someone that Mm -hmm. it was going to go. Oh, yeah. It's the worst feeling. Yeah. Like, I'm such a disappointment. Mm. To no one. Yeah, to no one. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the store fell through. Yes. So the store fell through. Um, ended up still moving to Portland with uh, who is now my ex-husband, but was just my boyfriend at the time. And because um, I, I, I had a lot of friends in college that were older than me, and a lot of them were from the Portland area. And so they moved back. And I would go down and visit them when I was still in school. And I was like, man, Portland is so cool. And it's like perfect artist town. And mm-hmm. um, I was born in Manhattan, grew up in Seattle. Um, but, you know, I was like, I don't want, I'm not going back to Seattle. It's it's too big of a city. Like I need to like get in, you know, who the fuck knows what I was thinking. But I <laughs> had stars in my eyes over Portland. So We ended up moving down there and I was still doing jewelry. uh, And then, you know, that, that thing hit of like, oh, you were done with college and you um, now need a job and you just making some fun jewelry is not going to cut it quite yet. Right, right. So I ended up getting a job at Nordstrom. The one in Pioneer Square? Oh no, I was at Lloyd Center. Oh my God, I forgot about that one, RIP. Yeah, RIP Lloyd Center. It's crumbling even more, even though they like did a whole revamp a couple years ago and tried to make it fun again. They put but, in that yeah. staircase. Oh yeah. The glass <laughs> staircase. Yeah. So watch the small children on the ice rink. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah. It I mean it was I think they said it was the second highest theft store in the company. That's what I heard that basically they had to close it because 
they were losing more money on theft than they were mm-hmm. actually making in sales because I people would that. steal stuff from other Nordstroms too and bring oh, it in there to return. Oh, yeah. So it's oh, just yeah. like a perfect storm. And I know there the um, uh, Victoria's Secret that was in the Lloyd Center was also one mm-hmm. of the highest theft Victoria's Secrets in the area. And you, saying that out loud, like if you're not from Portland, you're like, whoa, Lloyd Center must be in like a really shady area. There is no shady area in Portland, okay? <laughs> no, no. It's definitely like it was – I think it just is – I. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's it's all of this. All of these stories are flooding my head of because I worked in the accessories department first, which also had a high end sunglass department. Mm. And yeah, I would have I had people come in, like I had these two people come in who are obviously on some sort of substance, and they wanted to buy three pairs of Dior glasses that was like twenty one hundred dollars. <laughs> And they handed me a credit card that literally said, I don't remember, like, blah, 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 church. It was literally no. a card. Yeah. And I was just like, Ugh. because of all of, you know, rules and regulations and laws, basically, like, they have to make that purchase and leave the store before they can be apprehended or you can even say anything. And so it just was like, it was so weird. And I had to do that so many times. There was, I'll just give you two other quick examples. because Okay. It just would make me crazy. But there was one other lady that bought a $900 watch and a $35 bracelet and from me. And you're on Nordstrom is commission-based sales. And so then she went downstairs and switched the price tags and returned the, the bracelet with the watch tag on it <gasps> and got the $800 or $900 back. And so then that came out of my paycheck. And it was just like all of these things happened. My favorite, though, was... This guy one time, I was working in jewelry, and he, there was a big tower with a ton of watches on it. And he was, like, looking at them, and I was busy with someone else. And I walked by the tower after I saw him walk away, and, like, 20 watches were missing. And they, I saw, like, push the button to get them to go find him. And they caught him as he was running out of the store. And, like, no joke, his arms were just completely, like, covered from wrist to elbow in watches under his jacket. Oh my God. I wish I could have seen that. (laughs) (laughs) Does it surprise me at all? It does not surprise me at all. That mall is so weird. But you know what? I I worked at the Urban Outfitters that was up on Northwest 23rd in the early aughts. Mm -hmm. And like the crime, like the theft up there was insane also. Yeah. Like it's just like Portland's a really shoplifty town. I don't know if it is now, but it definitely was for a long time there. Because, like, there weren't a lot of jobs, you know. There was a lot of meth. And it was just – it was, it was you know, it was grungy, you know. And there's a lot of bored kids who are coming in from the suburbs and doing stupid things. Like, Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yes. They're all stealing thong underwear with marijuana <laughs> leaves on them. At least that's what they were doing then. And then they'd set off the door. We'd take them in the back. Make them dump out their bags. There was always a bong oh, yeah. in there. So you're working at Nordstrom. You're solving crimes. Mm-hmm. Solving crimes, taking names. Um, and I finally hit a point that I had. I also had this. I was what was I? Twenty three. I had a manager who was nineteen. And Whoa! At Nordstrom. Wow. Yeah. yeah. She had like moved up the ranks real fast. From like um, junior high? Yeah, from, from a bottle? I don't know. And <laughs> she 
I came to find out, I didn't even, I didn't even last a year at Nordstrom because I found out that she, there's this like, I don't remember the Nordstrom lingo, but basically like, there's this program that people will go into for manager and training. And I'd been recommended by the store manager and like a couple other people. And they, you know, they realized like, oh, hey, this girl knows what she's doing. Because at that point, I've been working retail for like 10 years and mm-hmm. knew how to sell, you know, sell you some things. But I come to find out this manager actually like told them that I wasn't allowed to be in this class and like was holding me back and didn't want me to be successful. This 19 year old? Uh-huh. Yeah. She <sighs> was like scared of me or I don't know what. So I ended up leaving. I ended up, it was the only job I've ever quit in my life and like quit with no notice. I literally like walked in one day in jeans. I I was in jeans. I got these like Michael Kors, (laughs) oh God, Michael Kors like trouser with the, you know, the front little square pockets Uh on top of your hips and they had chain on them. Whoa. I was pretty fancy. It was the one and only time I ever wore those pair of jeans. And I walked in and I quit. Then I just was like, okay, I'm going to make this jewelry thing happen. And so I I also had nannied on and off uh, in high school and college. And so I decided I was like, okay, I'm just going to go back to nannying because I can have flexibility and I love kids. And so I was doing that and then doing jewelry design. Um, and basically... There was, it was probably about five years that I was doing that and I was getting into um, some more stores and was doing, uh, that's when, you know, Instagram had started. And Mm -hmm. so it was funny. I went in a deep dive the other day and some of my first photos on Instagram are of my jewelry. And I was just like, oh God, this is is painful. (laughs) Thank you internet for holding on to these for so long. (laughs) And uh, so I was doing that. And then I finally like hit a wall. And during this time I got engaged, I got married um, and I just like hit a wall and was just like very depressed and just felt like I wasn't um, doing what I wanted to do, which, you know, once again, circled back to, I wanted to be a clothing designer. And so I decided, I looked up programs in Portland because I was like, I don't want to go back and do a BA or an AA, or, you know, I want to do a certificate because of the background I already have. And I was also um, doing like freelance costume design in Portland too. So I was still, you know, I was still flexing those muscles. Mm -hmm. And um, I found a program that did, it was basically like, you could take classes as like a community member, or you could do, um, it was kind of a trade school. Uh, and you could do a certificate in apparel design. And so I decided to apply to that. And um, that was like September of 2011, I want to say, um, or 12. And I can never, it's, <laughs> it's so hard remembering things. Um, and so I started the program and Basically, it was it would take about two years, and I was like, "Uh, uh-uh, I'm I'm a stubborn Taurus. I'm gonna do what I want. I'm gonna jam this all into a year, and I'm gonna do it full time, and I'm gonna like double up on classes." And uh, I also did. I applied to the there was a program within the certificate that was called Fashion Forward, and it was basically um, 
all of the design classes and then all the business classes. And you would take both of those and then the culmination of everything would be launching your line. And so I decided that I wanted to do that um, and applied to it, got in. There was seven of us, seven women. Uh, the year that I was in it, there was no no one else. But um, And so I started doing that. I started taking classes and I just was so excited about it. And I was loving it and I was learning. A lot of people think like, oh, Costumes and clothing, same thing. It's like, actually, no, because, you know, costumes are meant to be taken apart. They have sometimes four inch seam allowances so that you can make them bigger and smaller, depending on character, mm -hmm. you can use it again. And clothing is meant to be, is made to not be taken apart or right. hopefully not fall apart. And so there was, you know, certain things were like, yawn, yeah, been there, done that. And other things, like I took a bra making class and I'm wow. like, I think I'm like a 38 or a 40 double H like bras are very hard to find in my size. And so mm -hmm. I was so excited about learning how to make them come to find out. It's very hard to find underwire and like other supplies in that size. And so it was like huh. a bra disaster, but it's fine. I still learn. <laughs> I can make cute, small boobs, great bras. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I um, fast forward to February of 2013. So yeah, that was all 2012, 2013. I was going to go to a fashion show for the other fashion, the previous year's Fashion Forward program. And I like had this weird feeling. I was going to go with my two of my friends and one of my friends was supposed to hang out with my husband that night, but then I like changed plans and took him to the show and everyone was being like weird. And I was, I just didn't, I didn't know what's going on. Come to find out. Dun, dun, dun. Um, my <laughs> husband was having an affair with my best friend who was also my boss. And going on for 75% of my three and a half year marriage. Oh my God. This is so my world kind of crumbled. Um, I took like a six week break from everything in life. And I, you know, had to figure out what I wanted to do. And like, I was, it was really hard because I was so excited about this program and so excited about everything that I was doing and really felt like it was the right place for me. But I also, it was basically unbearable to be in Portland. Um, and so I ended up just kind of giving myself some space and taking the rest of the um, term off of school and I came to the decision that I was going to get a divorce and, um, you know, start over and sell my house and um, continue the program because I was just like, no, they're not going to take this away from me. No. Yeah. Yeah. I basically did the rest of the program and launched my line. Basically what it was at the end of the program, you would do the fashion forward show and you would do um, a buyer's hour the hour before the show so boutiques and buyers could come in and look at pieces and talk to you about you know doing orders potentially and then there was the show and um out of there was like I said there's seven of us I am the only one who's still standing and seven years later and I won there was like a audience 
basically like a I don't want to. My brain wants to say popularity contest, and that is not what it was. <laughs> it, was a, it was a contest of who whose designs did everyone like the best. Uh-huh. And so I actually ended up winning like the audience favorite line award. And um, I had four stores that were interested in buying things from my line, and everyone else had one store. And the whole time that I was in school, I had to fight tooth and nail to actually make plus size clothing. I was told, don't don't put your stuff online for a year. You'll like ruin all your chances of being in wholesale and boutiques. Um, <laughs> I was told that I had to have a size uh, eight fit model, which my, my line started at size 12. Why would you have a size eight fit model? I mean, probably because, you know, <laughs> internalized fat phobia and when we yeah. the program was super old school. Um, yeah. And... So I like, I had to pay for my own models for the show. I had to like, it was just constant pushback. And then it was so satisfying at the end to be like, oh, what's that? I have the most people interested in me. Oh, what's that? I've already made (laughs) sales. And it's still, it's still a little satisfying to be like, oh, what's that? I'm the only one standing still. Oh, okay. Yeah. I should listen to you. Well, you're also like the only one who's truly innovating, you know? So of course your work is going to stand out. Well, thank you. I mean, I like, <laughs> you know what? There's plenty of clothes for small people out there. You know what I mean? Like, Let's just go ahead and say there's too many clothes for small people out there. There's too many. And that's why there's like, so they're also boring because there's so much repetition, yeah. you know? And I, I feel like if you're going to, in like 2020 or 2014 or whatever, be like, I'm going to start my own line and it's just going to be like little people clothes. Well, then good luck because your competition is so tight. What, what could possibly differentiate you in this world? And it was, it was interesting because we took a lot of classes and a lot of marketing classes and a lot of classes trying to figure that out and trying to figure out like, what is the problem you're solving? What are you trying to do? Like, yeah, you can't just reinvent the wheel and be like, here's some pants. Like, what is the purpose behind these pants? Why are you doing this? And, you know, we had to do that with everything, even down to, like, the names of our company. And it was, like, had to explain all of your reasoning behind it. And I remember just kind of thinking, like, oh, like, eye-rolling a little bit. But it also made it so grounded for me and made me understand, you know, even even on a deeper level, why I was doing what I was doing. Um, you know, it's one of those, one of those other ones of looking back at school and being like, I just wanted to get out of there. And then you're like, can I live there forever now? (laughs) Totally, totally. So you also, you brought up something interesting when we were talking before, like, and I've heard this from other designers too, where people are like, you know what you should do? You should go on Project Runway. Oh, Lord. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like. (laughs) <laughs> like everybody loves some unsolicited advice, right? Oh, yeah. And I, I mean, I know that obviously you're not you're not into that, but why do you think that's a bad idea? Um, well, there's a lot of reasons, but I mean, first of all, Project Runway, like I eat it up. I watch every single episode. Mm-hmm. Ironically, the only season I never saw was when I was in New York and it was Christian Seriano's season. And I've never ah. seen that. And it's actually like impossible to find on the internet. If anyone finds it, please let me know. Send it to me. 
Yeah, that is true. It is hard to find. And I feel like, and this is probably connected, he's the mm-hmm. most successful person mm-hmm. to have come out of Project Runway. Totally. He's like no one else is doing anything, right? I mean, some like people are, but not to the extent of, you know, he is a household name. He is extremely successful. Like he, you know, everyone knows who he is. Mm-hmm. There's other people that like have been successful and are, you know, but a lot of them, it's, it's a reality show. They literally paint you as a character. They literally decide mm-hmm. who you're going to be. And I would be the girl who has an anxiety attack and cries in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. No, nobody, nobody needs that. I know myself. <laughs> <laughs> I know how I work. I work very well under pressure, but I will cry the whole time. Yeah. And that show seems so stressful. Like sometimes I have to leave the room to pull myself together while watching it. It's like too much. I've heard stories. um, After LA and New York, Portland is actually the place that the most designers come from for Roger Runway. I've noticed that. I've noticed Mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, Portland's a really great place for indie fashion and, you know, we're close enough to LA that you can get down there really easily. And um, so I've heard stories from people that have done it that like they would unthread your machines and, or they would take the needle on your machine or they would like really like the producers. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Or things or like just to cause tension and to cause drama. And, you know, I, I lap that shit up when I'm watching it, but um, I've been asked multiple times to apply um, and was even asked um, I was asked about three weeks after I got diagnosed with cancer and I'm pretty sure that they like almost pooped themselves cause they were so excited about the idea <laughs> of using me in the next season. And they were, they were like, we're coming to Portland next week. We want to interview you. Like we want to like, this is so amazing. Like, like, and I don't want to make the person sound, you know, not sincere, but they basically were just like, I, they called me back the next day and they're like, we've, I've been thinking about it. And like, I just, you know, I just really hope that everything's going to be okay for you. Uh, but we'd really love to meet you. And like, I just knew that they wanted to use that as the comeback oh, story. For so, sure. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost like there's this curse too on designers that they will go on Project Runway. And I think that everyone has stars in their eyes that like, this is it. This is going to launch me. This is going to make everything amazing. This is going to, you know, all of my goals will, and dreams will happen because of this. And it actually is like the opposite. There's so many people that have been on Project Runway that don't design anymore. That's or so that sad. Or like companies are like, they do not have their line. They do not like, it like, I feel like it kind of burns people out. I um, so I just knew for myself, I was like, they're going to paint me as some weird character that, you know, like I said, cries in the corner. They're going to be the emotional cancer survivor. And I will say that it is tempting as someone who wants, I don't, I don't want fame for myself. Mm-hmm. That is not something that I, that I crave or need. I want to further my brand for the purpose for people to know that clothing exists in their size and exists in a fashionable way and exists for them to be able to express themselves. And so it was tempting to like do that almost because then I knew that, you know, that girl that lived in middle of nowhere, Ohio, 
would would know that there was something out there for her and would know that she could wear whatever she wanted to wear because I would design it for her. But beyond that, like, it's it's just a factory that they crank shit out. And I was like, I don't want to be a cog. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't – I feel like you would need six months to recover after it was over. Oh, yeah. And it does seem to be cursed, <laughs> for lack of a better adjective, because, like, as we're talking, I'm trying to think – I know – there's someone in Portland who won it quite a few seasons ago. I don't know what she's doing now. I can't think of anyone else who's won and gone on to do something. And I can't even think of anyone who didn't want win, but who was like a viewer favorite who mm-hmm. is doing anything either. And so what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to I know. Put like, yourself through that. I know that Mondo's still doing stuff because I follow him on Instagram and I'm always but he does like a lot of stuff for drag queens and more like avant-garde art. Mm-hmm. Things. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. There's, I mean, Ashley Nell Timpton, who was the first uh, designer who did plus size uh, and she won, she just actually recently announced that she's leaving designing. No and, way. Yeah. yeah. She, <sighs> she is uh, no longer going to, I don't think that she has made, I mean, she's been doing masks because yes, she's been making a ton of masks. Um, but yeah, she she has like a YouTube show show now, I think, or something. And she like she made an announcement that she was quitting designing. It does sort of seem like she's more of like an influencer now mm-hmm. than yeah. a designer. But yeah, that, that's that's so sad, you know. Yeah. When you because you get you try to be on that show because you love fashion because you're passionate mm-hmm. about being a designer and then to be like now I, I do something totally different I'm burned out I don't even like clothes anymore I'm a nudist whatever <laughs> like you know <laughs> we the pendulum completely in the opposite yeah way. yeah so well let's talk about copper union because you started to talk about it and you know I stumbled across your line on Instagram because someone else that I follow posted something from like shared something and I was like oh my god this is like what I've been looking for because it's like cool oh you know it's like cool clothes in bigger sizes which for some reason is very rare why is that (laughs) you know I I feel like a simple answer is the patriarchy (laughs) it is yeah no I think I think a lot of something I keep discovering is a lot of things are either the patriarchy's fault or capitalism's fault. Mm-hmm. I mean, they hold hands and skip. <laughs> they do. They're really oh, good. They're buddies. Yeah. yeah. They, they wear matching scrunchies or something. Oh, <laughs> we have those like best friend necklaces, but one just says like heart and the other one just says broken. Oh, <laughs> it's, it's funny because it's true. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so Copper Union starts at size 12, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why is that? So I purposely did that, uh, because of the program that I was in and I was like, okay, I need to get into regular retail because at the time there was two stores in Portland that carried plus size, small boutiques I'm speaking to. I can't even think of any in Portland right now. Amelia, which is on Amelia, okay. and Union Rose, uh, which is in Montevilla. Okay. So two stores mm-hmm. in a whole city that has many, many shopping places. Yes. Yes. Um, and so I basically was like, all right, how do I get my foot in the door? And I said, size 12, because most of those stores, that's their biggest size. And so I just decided to start there. And 
Um, uh, originally, I did sizes one through five, which are split sizes, which is sizes 12 to 30. So it was a 12, 14 for a one, 16, 18 for a two, so on and so forth. And I basically wanted to start it there because I knew that that would appeal to the buyers or to the owners of the stores a little bit more and that it would feel like potentially less of a risk for them. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of the stores initially I did it on consignment. I mean, I assume most of your listeners know what that is, but if you don't, basically it means that it is somewhere between a 50, 50 or a 60, 40 split. And you put the products in the store and you don't get money until they sell. So it is a very low risk situation for the stores and it can mm-hmm. be a very high risk situation for the designer or vendor. Um, and so I did that initially and I still, I still was something that they ingrained in me uh, in the program over and over again was you are not your customer. Do not design for yourself. And so even though I pushed back and I didn't listen to the other things and I was my stubborn Taurus self. That one stuck with me. And so I was still trying to do that. I was still trying to design for other people and not trust my instincts. And um, I was doing a lot of fashion shows. There's a lot of great smaller fashion shows here in town. And so I was doing some of those. And anytime that I would design something, um, like I said, I work very well under pressure. Hello, I'm, (laughs) I'm a procrastinator. And um, so there would always be one or two pieces that I just was like down to the wire trying to figure it out. And I would just slap something together and I would, you know, do it out of fabric that I only had three yards or I would do it and I wouldn't even put a zipper in. And like, I just would, in the words of Tim Gunn, make it work. And then those would be the pieces that everyone would lose their minds over. Those would be always what everyone requested. And I would, I always be like, oh shit. I literally don't have any more of this fabric. I cannot possibly order any more of it. Like, and it just, there was this lesson that just kept slapping me in the face over and over again. <laughs> and finally I was like, okay, I, and this was also, I did a, a drop ship deal with a company that um, ended up going very poorly. And I invested probably five or $6,000 into this. And it just, didn't pan out in that way. And that was, that was probably four years ago. And I still have inventory from that on my site that drives me crazy. (laughs) If anyone wants to buy a white, white with black trim scuba shawl front vest, please do. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) anymore. (laughs) They like are at the bottom of the bottom of the page. And I, uh, yeah, my one of my girlfriends is doing a little bit of contract work for me right now. And she was just like, why do you have so many of these? I was like, I don't want to talk about it. Don't, don't remind me. <laughs> but, you know, it was, that was another lesson yet again of um, I needed to actually do what I wanted to do. Because something that is so lacking in plus, um, and even to, to this day, like things have come so far like the fact that there are you know like um savage fenty rihanna's uh lingerie line the fact that like that was launched in plus size the fact that ivy park the the new 
drip two um, drop had plus size. Like that didn't exist when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. But giant butt, like they are giving us that, but it's not the same product. Like you can see all these things and see how beautiful they are. And then it's like, here you go. You can have a watered down cover up version of it. Yeah. It looks like everybody's like gatekeeping what they think you should wear. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's everyone who's doing that is like a size nothing little mini person that has probably never been fat in their life, has probably never dressed a fat person correctly in their life. And so it just, I just got to a point that um, I was like, I'm done designing for other people. And when I finally got to that point, it definitely was a major shift in my company and the way that it worked for me. And also at that point, I realized that Portland is amazing for indie designers and Portland is an amazing, there's an amazing body positive um, community or also like, I am, I am a person that uses the word fat and uh, uses it in a mm-hmm. way that it's a descriptor, you know, it's, it's a word that we can use to describe our bodies. And I, I have chosen to take that word back because it was weaponized and used against me the majority of my life by others. And, you know, I refer to my, my friends as fat babes. Like it's, and it's so funny to watch the evolution of like my standard straight size friends, like feel so incredibly awkward and nervous to be like, you're (laughs) fat, fat babe friend. Like, and like, yeah, you can, you can just call them fat. They're not going to cry. You're not going to upset anyone. We're not in third grade. Um, So there's really awesome fat there's a huge fat liberation movement that happened that is happening in Portland and has been happening before I even entered the fashion scene. Um, and so it kind of made me realize like I was doing all these shows. I was always one, if not two of the designers that were doing plus size. There's amazing plus size models in Portland. And so I was just like, I need, I need more. I need something more. And so I started to, toy with the idea of doing a show and that's where knockout um came to be and it was kind of a transitional period that for what I was doing in my line and also wanting to bring in more community and um it just kind of collided into a perfect thing that um we were able to the first year I did knockout we did it at Holocene which I'm, I'm guessing you had at least one late night dancing there at some point in your Portland days. <laughs> it was so much more than I ever thought it would be. I thought it was going to be like a fashion show and people would buy some stuff. And it became, I don't want to like fluff my own feathers and make up a, 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 a you know, a term like I just did, but <laughs> It was just an amazing experience realizing like people came up to me that I didn't know and were just like crying and telling me how affirming it was to be in a room full of people that looked like them and to be able to look around at all these beautiful clothing and know that they could buy it and know that it would fit their body and they wouldn't have to worry about it and to feel supported. And, you know, I had this one woman come up to me one time and she's like, I've never worn anything sleeveless. And I did today because I knew that this was the place that I could. Um, And it was just, it was so much more 
than what I thought it would be. Um, and so that kind of changed the trajectory a little bit, I feel like, of Copper Union, just because um, it kind of made people think about my line and myself in a different way. It brought new people to me that didn't, you know, didn't know that Copper Union existed before. That was four years ago. And then we did another show the next year and that was at the Wonder Ballroom. And so it was even bigger and, mm-hmm. um, and it was, it was super great again. And at that time I, cause when I was in school, it was always focused on collections, collections, collections. That is what you do. You make a collection, you know, you have a, you have a red line going through it, connecting it all, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And I got to a point that I was like, why am I, why am I following? Like, there's so many arbitrary rules and ways that it's always been done in fashion. And this is how it's supposed to be. And you're supposed to do this. And this is, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, no, I'm done listening to all of that. Um, And so I just started doing um, like individual pieces. And I started, I kind of turned my whole business on its head and I did away with collections. I do mini collections for knockout but that's just because I, I still love, I'm a fiber nerd and a fabric nerd and a surface design nerd. Mm-hmm. And I, there's nothing more than I love than mixing patterns and like freaking people's eyeballs out with what will work together. So there's always going to be, I always will have a small place in my heart for collections and do little ones, but basically like all of the shifting was happening and um, people were, you know, learning more about my line and learning more about the pieces. And um, it was coming to this amazing point. And then I got super sick and I, I had been getting progressively sick for a few years. I had a cyst on my pancreas that they found, um, I guess about four and a half years ago now. And it caused pancreatitis I ended up in the hospital a few different times and like severe pain and they basically um were like you have a cyst we're just gonna watch it it's fine it's fine they did tumor panels nothing showed up it's fine and long 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 story short about three years later I ended up in the hospital I was driving to an event um for work and I had to pull over on 84 because I couldn't breathe And I was just like terrified. And I called my partner and I told him that I was going to go to the emergency room because I knew that I could get there safely. And um, so when I got there, then they're like, actually, the cyst is now the size of a grapefruit. Oh, my God. uh, (laughs) Killed your spleen by cutting off the blood supply to it and pushing on it. And it's pushing on your diaphragm, which is causing referred pain in your shoulder nerve pain in your shoulder so it's like and my oxygen levels were like in the 70s when they're supposed to be you know 95 and above um so I was in the hospital for eight days trying to get my oxygen levels up and then they finally were like okay you have to have surgery and this was in February of 2018 and then in May of 2018 I had surgery and then a month after I had surgery they called me and told me that everything looks good. We're just going to send everything to the Mayo Clinic for a second opinion because uh, the type of cyst that I had, they don't see it very often at the labs that they were doing the pathology at. And then a week later, I got a phone call back and they said that I did have cancer. Um, and 
it was just like, you know, the, I, I don't remember everything about it. I only remember bits and pieces, but basically like the next two weeks were a whirlwind and I was immediately thrust into chemo because um, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, uh, stage one. You know, we all have these super long names. It's actually pancreatic cancer stage, uh, stage one, T1AN0M0, which basically means no sign of it in the lymph nodes and no, uh, it had not metastasized. Which is which, good. This is good news. Which is great. Yeah. Especially for pancreatic cancer because pancreatic cancer is horrific and- just last year was the first time that it ever reached double digits for survival rate five years past diagnosis. Wow. It's now 10%. Um, and, you know, if anyone, anyone that you've ever known, if you say something about pancreatic cancer, they will just immediately tell you about their uncle, aunt, grandma, whoever that has died. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. Um, Patrick Swayze, yeah. Alex Trebek. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Ruth. Bader, uh, yeah, little, 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 yeah, that's true. Brother, yeah, yeah, and um, John Lewis too. Yeah, um, you know, that's just, and it's it's a disease that mostly happens in older people. But I was the youngest. I was thirty four. Um, I was the youngest person that my doctor, my oncologist, had ever seen. Um, and so, yeah, I dove right after and during, so I basically, I had to take time off for surgery. Um, I'd take a month off because it was an eight hour abdominal surgery. Oh. And they were basically like, you can't engage your core for a month. And you have no idea how much you engage your core until someone tells you you can't do it. Mm-hmm. Like I had to have someone, you know, help me sit down on the toilet. I had to someone help me get up off the toilet. I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't sit up in a chair without help. Like so many, I couldn't do anything. And so my parents, thankfully they're retired and they were down here and my partner came down and, or he lives here. He didn't come down. Um, and they were helping me. And then I get this cancer diagnosis and then I get told I have to start chemo immediately. And I was just so angry. Um, because I just, I'd finally gotten to this point with my business and I'd finally gotten this point in my life that, Mm -hmm. um, you know, everything was going really well. And I was super excited about what I was doing. And then I was told that I had a horrific disease that, you know, for the first probably three or four months, I just was like, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And, um, What's the point of designing anything? Cause I can't, it's never going to be produced and it's just going to make me sad. And so for, I got, I started chemo in June um, of 2018. And then I finished chemo in January of 2019. Um, and my chemo was cumulative and basically I was incredibly ill by the end of it. Like mm-hmm. couldn't, go up the stairs because I was so exhausted and I had neuropathy um, in my hands from side effects from chemo. And so I couldn't, with neuropathy, for those people that don't know, it basically is like horrific pins and needles, fire Ugh. sensation. It has to do with your nerves. Mm-hmm. And so it just was like, and you can't touch anything cold because it feels, it's like singeing, burning feelings. And so, um, I remember about probably about 
two months after I finished chemo and I finally was like able to do something. Cause like, I'm talking like I couldn't make myself food cause I was so tired. Like I couldn't, there was days that I would go upstairs to go to the bathroom and then I would just tell whoever was there helping me out. I'm like, I'm not coming back down. I'm too tired. Like mm-hmm. I'm just going to bed. Um, and it was super hard because it basically was about 11 months of not being creative. Um, and it was something that I talked to my therapist a lot about because um, creativity is like the most important thing to me and my creativity and my like drive um, was totally diminished. And it was, it just felt like half of me was ripped out and um I slowly, after chemo, I did a lot of um, punch needle, uh, which is like traditional rug making techniques. Mm-hmm. One of my friends is doing that right like, now. That's I just I, learned about it this week. Oh, you, you're going to love it. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, that was like the one thing that I could do. Um, Cause my therapist, I remember one day I was just, you know, sobbing in, in her office and she, she was like, okay your assignment when you leave here, and this was early on when I could still like drive myself places safely. She's like, you're going to go to the art store and you're going to buy whatever inspires you. And so I went to Blick and I spent like $300 on. Whoa. I mean, it's easy there though. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) But it was just like the most random shit ever. Like I got, um, what is this? Do you remember Spirographs? Oh my gosh, that okay. So you know, I had we talked about this before. I had cancer when I was a kid, mm-hmm. and Spirograph was like my best buddy in the hospital. Yeah. I was Spirographing all over the place. That like makes me almost want to tear up because I definitely got that and was just like, I can do this. This is easy. I can and like it was totally reminding me of childhood. And you know, I got like origami paper and clay and stickers and just like all of this shit. And um it just kind of helped it a little bit, but it just, it was something that um, being able to make things with my hands was, I felt like, you know, like I said, ripped away from me. And so it was just, it was, it was really hard and challenging. And um, I was terrified that, you know, I had to cancel knockout for that year and I had to, and I, it was that same thing of like, I'm disappointing everyone. When in reality, everyone's like, oh my God, you have a deadly disease and we want to take care of you. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so about two months after I finished chemo, I was like, all right, I'm going to the studio. I'm going to sew something today. I'm just going to make something fun for myself and it's going to be great. And I go in there and it took me 10 minutes to thread the needle on my machine because my fingers were so numb and I couldn't do it. And I just remember breaking down and just being like, my life is over. Like I sure survived this horrific cancer, but I can't use my hands now. And like, what, what can I even do? And thankfully the neuropathy like dissipated and, and completely went away. Cause there's some people that it does not. Um, mm-hmm. so I feel very fortunate for that. And, but it then presented an opportunity for me to be able to once again kind of turn my head on, um, turn my head, <laughs> turn my business on its upside down and just figure out what was serving me and what wasn't serving me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's when things just really skyrocketed 
for myself and my brand. And um, it just felt like the most, the truest form of doing what I wanted to do, which is making beautiful clothes for beautiful bodies. There you go. You did it. (laughs) I did it. The end. Okay, thanks. Bye. Wow. Thank you so much, Claire, for taking the time to talk to me. And I'm like excited to say that she'll be back in the next episode to talk about running a business, why the industry is totally doing it wrong with plus sizes, and so much more. I know you all love her already, don't you? Aren't you so glad to hear she's going to be back? (laughs) Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing... Can you say it along with me? (laughs) Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Thanks to everyone who has shared our content, recommended us on Instagram. I just love hearing from all of you. I love when you ask me questions. I love seeing you repost, you know, the Instagram posts that I make (laughs) and tell people to read the captions. I love all of that. You know, when I started the Instagram for Clothes Horse, it was really, you know, I thought, okay, sometimes there are going to be things I talk about on Clothes Horse that would be nice to see, like, a visual to go with, or, you know, it'll introduce people to Clothes Horse who might not have found the podcast otherwise. But now I really see Instagram as, like, a part of, like, Clothes Horse as a whole. Like, it's another way to reach people, share information, educate, and meet new people. And so... It's like, I put a lot of work into it. (laughs) And so I'm excited. All the new people we've brought to the podcast from Instagram, from the podcast to Instagram. And I just think it's all like connected. So thank you for also being active and engaging with me on Instagram. If you ever want to see a source for the statistics or information that I provide here on the podcast or on Instagram, you know you can reach out. I've got all the articles, so many articles in my in my bookmarks folder. And maybe you need them for a school project or just to be better at arguing with people about things. <laughs> I support both of those causes. <laughs> Do you have some feedback, an episode idea? Do you want to be a guest on Clothes Horse? I'm just going to say this here right now while you're all listening. I have a whole wish list of people I would love to talk to for the show. And I think all of you would like to hear about too. If you specifically are an expert in shoes, like the footwear industry, uh, maternity clothing, that's another one I'm looking for. Um, it'd be great to talk to someone who has worked in the more fast fashion-y side of jewelry that Claire talked about in this episode, you know, the area of like the $2.90 necklace. Please reach out to me. I have so many questions for you. <laughs> if you have anything else you want to ask me, say, send me. You can drop me a line at clotheshorsepodcast at gmail.com. You can DM me via Instagram at clotheshorsepodcast. If you have a question, hit me up because I love a research project. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. I'll link to that in the show notes. And don't forget the Close Horse hotline. The phone number is 717-925-925. 7417. Give me a call. Even if you just want to say hi, tell me something random, 
tell me what you're doing for the holidays, ask me a question, tell me a story, talk about your collections. I mean, I love it when you call me, so call me. And don't forget to check out the department. I co-host it with my friend Kim. We talk about trends, taste, all kinds of weird stuff, (laughs) candy that makes you vomit. As you know, we've been working on a series about hashtag girlboss, and guess what? We're going to be releasing a bonus third episode about the topic this week because after we released these two, it was like, oh my God, there's so many other things we need to talk about. So it's coming this week. And listen, Selena Sanders loves us. So you know you want to check this out, right? Thanks as always to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye.